that Christ is a human sacrifice to, to redeem us from God. A substitutionary sacrifice is a neo-pagan doctrine worthy of Baal or Molech. First thing to understand is that we're not dealing with sin. And most people fall into sin not because they're intrinsically evil. Sin isn't of breaking the law. So, the cure suggested by the legal models of atonement simply don't fit the disease. It's not the problem. This is the great condescension of God. To see him face to face is actually to see him as an equal. The movement towards God, which is salvation, is also a movement towards the true self. Thus we declare, thus we affirm, thus we proclaim Christ our true God and honor his saints in words, writings, thoughts, sacrifices, churches, and holy icons. On the one hand, worshiping and reverencing Christ as God and Lord, and on the other, honoring the saints as true servants of the same Lord of all and offering them proper veneration. This is the faith of the apostles. This is the faith of the fathers. This is the faith of the Orthodox. This is the faith on which the world is established. Is this really the faith of the apostles, the fathers, and the Orthodox? Is it really the faith on which the world is established? 
On September 25, 2022, the Patriarch of Moscow addressed his nation. Did Jesus really die so that we could atone for our sins in battle? In spite of all its claims, Eastern Orthodoxy isn't the faith of the Apostles nor of the Fathers. It's a corruption and twisting of that faith through man-made traditions. The Catholic Church, as never having spoken or speaking from herself, but from the Spirit of God, who being her teacher, she is ever unfailingly rich. It is impossible for her to in any wise err, or to at all deceive, or be deceived. But like the divine scriptures, is infallible, and has perpetual authority. Pharisees claimed to have an unwritten tradition that went back to Moses, and was just as authoritative as the written word of God. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The church fathers spoke a great deal of tradition, that which had been handed down. But they saw the scriptures as the heart of that tradition. We have learned from none other the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public, and at a later period, by the will of God, handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. Irenaeus passed along the stories he heard from those who knew the apostles, but he also warned that oral traditions were often used to promote heresy. When, however, they are confuted from the scriptures, they turn round and accuse these same scriptures as if they were not correct, nor of authority, and assert that they are ambiguous, and that the truth cannot be extracted from them by those who are ignorant of tradition. 
For they allege that the truth was not delivered by means of written documents, but orally. Rome claims papal infallibility, purgatory, and Mary herself being immaculately conceived are all apostolic traditions that have been handed down orally through the Church. Eastern Orthodoxy denies all these, but also the Protestant idea that the Scriptures alone are infallible. From an Orthodox perspective, uh, this is in fact the mother of the Protestant heresy, and you're right to say that I point this out in my book. It's not me saying it. This has been the first principle of Orthodox witness to the Protestant reformers from the 16th century. Um, we, we pointed out from the very beginning that if we, you do not respect the tradition of the church, if you make the mistake that Luther made, which was to jump from a recognition of the errors of post-schism Latin councils to a criticism of ecumenical councils, as soon as you make that move, that unsubstantiated false move, which Luther and all the reformers agreed on, that all general councils had erred, as soon as they did that, they made them popes of the church. That was not the consciousness in the mind of the church for a thousand years. They made years. themselves popes of the church. Absolutely. They became judges of ecumenical councils. And if they're judges of ecumenical councils, who is going to judge them? Josiah Trinum glosses over the fact that Rome, the Orthodox, and the Protestants all reject the Synod of Tyre that condemned Athanasius, even though it was roughly the same size as the Council of Nicaea and took place only ten years later. The father of Orthodoxy spent much of 18 years in exile, standing against the Bishop of Rome and councils on the authority of the Word of God. Vainly then do they run about with the pretext that they have demanded councils for the faith's sake. For divine scripture is sufficient above all things. But if a council be needed on the point, there are the proceedings of the fathers. For the Nicene bishops did not neglect this matter but stated the doctrine so exactly that persons reading their words honestly cannot but be reminded by them of the religion towards Christ announced in divine scripture. Numerous synods and councils that had supported Arianism were later rejected by the Council of Constantinople. Orthodox admit these smaller councils were in error, but we're to believe ecumenical councils speak with the authority of the Holy Spirit. I like to think of it this way. If Martin Luther was living at the time of the Apostles and the first council of the church took place, which was the council that met in Jerusalem as recorded in Acts chapter 15, this was a council, like all councils, that was convoked in response to the uh, appearance of a heresy. This heresy was the Judaizing heresy. If all general councils err, would it have been legitimate for Martin Luther to stand up, let's say he was living in Athens, and he said, no, I'm sorry, I disagree with the apostles. They're in, in contradiction to the scriptures. Mm. The apostles would have said, you don't have that right because you're misunderstanding our counsel. Didn't you hear us? It has seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to decide this. The faith of the church is that corporately, when the church needs to, she can come together and be confident that her decisions are guided by the Holy Spirit and that the gates of hell will not prevail. Martin Luther doesn't have that conviction. Hmm. The reformers never rejected the apostles' authority. It agreed with the law and the prophets and was attested with unquestionable miracles. But Trenum would have us believe their purported successors have the same authority without miracles and when they contradict what the apostles clearly taught in the scriptures.
He also ignores that the Eastern Orthodox reject 14 of the 21 councils Rome declares ecumenical, just as Rome rejects 6 of the 13 councils that at least some Orthodox declare as ecumenical. Both reject the Council of Hyaria that met just outside Constantinople in the year 754, even though its attendance was greater than five of the previous six ecumenical councils, and it declared itself the seventh. Why is it rejected? Because it sounds Protestant. The Holy and Ecumenical Synod, therefore assembled, and we, its 338 members, follow the older synodal decrees and accept and proclaim joyfully the dogmas handed down, principally those of the six holy ecumenical synods. After we had carefully examined their decrees under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we found, if anyone ventures to represent in human figures, by means of material colors, by reason of the incarnation, the substance or person of the word which cannot be depicted, and does not rather confess that even after the incarnation it cannot be depicted, let him be anathema. If anyone does not accept this, our holy and ecumenical seventh synod, let him be anathema from the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and from the seven holy ecumenical synods. Hyaria was overturned 33 years later by the Second Council of Nicaea, which, though less than half its size, declared itself the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Just as Second Nicaea overturned Hyaria, it was overturned 28 years later by the Council of Constantinople meeting in the Hagia Sophia and presided over by the Patriarch of Constantinople. It declared the Council of Hyaria was the Seventh Ecumenical Council. But then that was reversed yet again in the year 843, when the Empress Theodora came to the throne and declared Second Nicaea authoritative. One of the councils declared ecumenical by Rome was the 15th century Council of Ferrara Florence. It had been called by the Byzantine Emperor in hopes of presenting a united Orthodox and Catholic front against the Ottoman Turks. It included the Pope, the Patriarch of Constantinople, and representatives of the Patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. In 1439, it issued a statement declaring itself an ecumenical council, and accepted the primacy of the Pope, the filioque, the doctrine of purgatory, and the use of unleavened bread in communion. Only one Eastern bishop, Mark of Ephesus, refused to sign, but the Orthodox say he, not the council, represents true orthodoxy. Святитель Марк был в меньшинстве, но он выступил против огромной ошибки, которую делали другие отцы не осознавая, какие последствия могут за этой ошибкой последовать. Он отстоял верность православию. Opposition to the Union led the Russian Church to declare itself autocephalus in 1448. Tensions in Constantinople forced Patriarch Gregory III to withdraw to Rome in 1451. When Constantinople fell to the Turks two years later, Sultan Mehmed the Conqueror replaced Gregory with the anti-Unionist Gennadios II as Patriarch. Gennadios repudiated the Council of Ferrara Florence, renewing the Great Schism, 
and ensuring there would be no appeals to the West for military help. The simple reality is that Orthodox don't define their faith by ecumenical councils. They define councils as ecumenical by whether or not they agree with them. They're happy for individuals like Athanasius and Mark of Ephesus to stand against councils, but then are appalled at Luther and Calvin doing the same. Just as Josiah Trenum glosses over the fact that even supposedly ecumenical councils contradict one another, he caricatures the position of the Protestant reformers. Apostolic tradition, which is the ultimate authority, came to the church through letters and through mouth. And that can be seen in the life of the Thessalonians themselves. Paul lived with them for a year and a half, I believe, in the Acts of the Apostles. He taught them day in and day out for 18 months. Can you imagine having as your pastor the great apostle, and sitting with St. Paul and having him teach you day in and day out. Think of the education, the formation, the spiritual guidance you would have received from the apostle. He left you two small letters, one with five chapters, one with three. Most of what you would have received from St. Paul would have been oral. Imagine that after that time, he had to go away on his apostolic ministries, his missionary trips. Then he was martyred in Rome. The Protestants would like us to think that the moment St. Paul died, when Nero put him to death and cut his head off, all of a sudden, the only apostolic teaching that remains binding are these two little letters. I mean, spoken that way, it's just preposterous. It's absolutely mm. ridiculous. Orthodox can't actually provide a single word of Paul's teaching outside the Bible. They're simply assuming the unbiblical things the church did centuries later must have been supported by oral teachings. Paul didn't leave the Thessalonian church with only two letters, but a Bible. And that Bible makes clear that even in the days of the apostles, oral traditions lent themselves to the promotion of error. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren, that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Here's an oral tradition that supposedly went back to Jesus himself, but it had to be corrected by authentic apostolic teaching. Jesus didn't question whether Moses had taught things orally, but whether they had been faithfully preserved. He rejected the Jews' oral traditions as counterfeits. The scriptures aren't the revelations of God that just happened to be written down, but those God ordained to be preserved as a record by which all other traditions should be judged. When Rome and the Orthodox contradicted one another on oral tradition and councils, when both contradicted the scriptures and the church fathers, the reformers held to the Bible as their ultimate authority. But that doesn't mean they ignored tradition. The Swiss Reformation began with Ulrich Zwingli, not only reading the Bible, but Chrysostom's sermons from the 4th century. John Calvin cited the church fathers over 800 times in his Institutes of the Christian Religion to demonstrate that they read the Bible contrary to what Rome demanded be recognized as oral tradition. His French Confession of 1559 states, We confess that which has been established by the ancient councils, and we detest all sects and heresies which were rejected by the holy doctors, such as St. Hilary, St. Athanasius, St. Ambrose, and St. Cyril. Behind all its claims of tradition, it's Eastern Orthodoxy that contradicts the historic faith of the Church. This can be clearly seen in its claims about icons.
8th century monk John of Damascus insisted icons weren't simply permissible, but absolutely necessary to the Christian faith. He said those who refused to venerate them weren't warring against images, but against Christ and his saints. He was declared a heretic by the Council of Hyeria in the year 754, but 33 years later the Second Council of Nicaea declared him a saint. This link between icon and gospel is greatly emphasized by St. John of Damascus, and his three homilies on the holy icons are still the best patristic work for anyone to read who wishes to enter into the meaning of the icon. John's three treatises on divine images became the basis for Second Nicaea's demand for the veneration of icons. He pointed out that Abraham had bowed or offered proskinesis to the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers had offered him proskinesis. John argued this was a fundamentally different reverence from Latreia, which is the worship of God alone. If Joseph's brothers bowed to him, surely we should also bow to icons. If Christians were commanded to greet the saints with a holy kiss, Surely we should also kiss the images of those saints who are now in heaven. The Second Nicene Council declared that icons are to be given due salutation and honorable proskinesis, not indeed that true Latreia of faith, which pertains alone to the divine nature. This continues to be the position of the Orthodox Church to this day. There is a clear distinction here made between veneration and adoration. Adoration belongs to God alone. But all of us venerate to some extent different people, different things. We show honor and respect. And so we venerate our holy images, but we do not adore them as we adore God. It is not worship. The problem is that in the Septuagint, the second commandment specifically forbids Latreia and Proskinesis to an image, not just an image of a false god or to an image of the invisible god, but to any man-made image. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. John argued the Orthodox don't really offer veneration to the image, but to the one represented in the image. His critics pointed out that the pagans had argued the same thing about their idols for centuries, and God specifically forbids even making such images, much less bowing to them or kissing them. John appealed to the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, and to the brazen serpent Moses made in the wilderness. He said God had clearly commanded the making of graven images. But his critics countered that these were never intended for veneration. The ark was kept out of sight in the Holy of Holies, and God commended Hezekiah for destroying the brazen serpent when the Israelites began to burn incense to it. John insisted whatever objections might be offered from the Old Testament were irrelevant, because everything changed with Christ's incarnation. Before, God was invisible, but in Jesus we have the image, or icon, of the invisible God. The Seventh Ecumenical Council based its conclusions 
on our faith in the incarnation. Through the incarnation of Christ, matter itself has been sanctified. Its very nature has been changed. Its, its relation with God is altered. The physical universe is now in a different relationship to God than it was before the incarnation. And this is a master theme of St. John of Damascus. In the Old Testament, he says, it was not possible for there to be any icon of God. No one has seen God at any time. But this has been changed by the incarnation of God. If you reject the icon, or if you deny the, depict the depictability of Christ, you're denying the truth of the incarnation. It all seems so reasonable, but John's critics pointed out that God had made himself visible throughout the Old Testament, not only in appearances like the burning bush, but also in human form when the three men ate with Abraham, and when Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne. They admitted that proskynesis was offered to people, but pointed out that when Cornelius started to offer it to Peter, he stopped him, just as the angel did when John started to offer it to him. He told John instead to offer proskynesis to God. John's critics said the Old Testament was explicit, that such veneration wasn't to be offered to lifeless images, and the New Testament was strangely silent on something John insisted was absolutely necessary to the faith. He said they were refusing to hear the unwritten oral tradition represented in the historic faith of the church. It's a claim still made by the Orthodox. Well, we have evidence of the ancient church having had icons. In fact, St. Luke himself is credited with having painted the first icon of the Virgin Mary. Do such claims hold up to scrutiny? When Constantine ended persecution of the church in the year 313, his sister Constantia requested an image of Jesus from Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea. He responded, Can it be that you have forgotten the passage in which God lays down the law that no likeness should be made either of what is in heaven or what is in the earth beneath? Have you ever heard anything of the kind, either yourself in church or from another person? Are not such things banished and excluded from churches all over the world? Another 4th century bishop, Epiphanius of Salamis, stated on discovering a church building. I went in to pray, and found there a curtain hanging on the doors of the said church, dyed and embroidered. It bore an image either of Christ or of one of the saints. I do not rightly remember whose the image was. Seeing this, and being loath that an image of a man should be hung up in Christ's church, contrary to the teaching of the scriptures, I tore it asunder and advised the custodians of the place to use it as a winding sheet for some poor person. Here were two bishops on opposite sides of the Arian controversy, yet speaking with one voice against the veneration of images. John of Damascus declared such quotes forgeries of the iconoclast. He said the proof that Epiphanius didn't object to images was found in his own church in Salamis which he said we see adorned with images to this very day. He seems unaware that in the intervening 300 years, Arab raiders had destroyed Epiphanius' basilica. The church of John's day was a much later building, finished not long before John had been born.
He said even if Epiphanius did oppose images in worship, a single opinion can overturn the unanimous tradition of the whole church, which is spread to the ends of the earth. The earliest source he cites to prove that tradition is the story of King Abgar of Edessa, who John says sent a messenger to Jesus desiring his image. Jesus pressed his face in a cloth, leaving an image, and sent it to the king. Here was Jesus making an icon and establishing their legitimacy once and for all. The problem is that the earliest documentation for Abgar communicating with Jesus comes from Eusebius, nearly three centuries after Jesus' crucifixion, and there's no mention of an image. He said Abgar requested Jesus come and heal him. Instead, Jesus sent him a letter, explaining that after his resurrection, he would send one of his disciples to do so. The letter even has Jesus saying, They who have seen me will not believe in me, and they who have not seen me will believe and be saved. The pilgrimageria visited Edessa in the late 4th century, and wrote of being shown a letter from Jesus by the archbishop, but she makes no mention of an image. About the year 400, we have a description of an image in the doctrine of Adai, but it says the king's painter was the messenger sent to Jesus. He painted his portrait and brought it back to the king. The claim that the image was made miraculously can't be found before the 6th century, yet John of Damascus believed it to be apostolic oral tradition and 1st century evidence for icons. Another source he cites from the 1st century is Dionysius the Areopagite, who was converted by the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. John quotes from four of his works, including a letter to the Apostle John. Here were supposed to be the earliest and most authoritative writings outside the scriptures. Dionysius's works clearly state they were written by Paul's convert. The problem is that even the Orthodox now admit their forgeries, written not in the first century, but the sixth. These works don't appear to have antedated the turn of the sixth century, so they could not have been by the first century person. And the short answer as to who the author of this corpus is, is we don't know. Orthodox often criticize Rome for basing its claims on fake histories. And of course, that was all supported by the face, the fake, the false decretals that were invented in the ninth century in the Catholic tradition, in which the Emperor Constantine supposedly gave his mitre to uh, to the Pope and declared that he had authority over the temporal realm as well. A, a false assertion that the Catholic popes maintained for a very long time. Just as the donation of Constantine was a medieval invention, masquerading as ancient tradition, so were the writings of Dionysius. Another source John cites is the early 2nd century martyrdom of Eustace, whose name was originally Placida. John tells how, as a Roman officer, he was hunting a stag when a blazing cross, and then an icon of Jesus appeared in its antlers. The stag then identified himself as Jesus. Oh, Placida, why are you chasing me? Behold, for your sake, I came close to you and was seen by you in this living being. I am Jesus Christ, whom, without knowing, you reverence. For your good deeds, which you did to those who besought you, are present before me, and I came to manifest myself to you through this stag. Why the story of Abgar? This is supposed to be a very early witness for icons, but it was really a legend that appears sometime in the 6th or 7th centuries. 
Out of the over 100 citations John offers, only three others actually predate the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century. Clement of Alexandria describes the true Gnostic looking towards the good images, namely the many patriarchs who achieved success before him. The context leads some translators to render it models rather than images. To read it as referring to icons ignores what Clement said six chapters earlier when he said works of art cannot be sacred and divine. Methodius is quoted as describing the making of gold images of angels, and Theodore, bishop of Pentapolis, is quoted as describing an icon. But John is our only source for both quotes, so we can't determine their genuineness or context. Of the thousands of pages we have from the first 3 centuries of the church, these 9 citations are the evidence that was supposed to represent the unanimous tradition of icon veneration. 6 are themselves forgeries. One doesn't refer to icons, and the last two are ones for which we have no attestation before John of Damascus in the eighth century. Yet Second Nicaea anathematized those who said the veneration of icons wasn't the tradition of the church. Another source John cites is from the supposed life of Basil in the fourth century. The holy man was standing by the image of Our Lady. On which was painted also the likeness of Mercurius, the renowned martyr. He was standing by it, asking for the removal of the impious apostate Julian, and he received this revelation from the statue. He saw the martyr vanish for a time, and then reappear, holding a bloody spear. There were tributes written soon after Basil's death by his brother Gregory of Nyssa. And Gregory Nazianzus, along with a third commonly attributed to Ephraim the Syrian. Not only do none make mention of this incident, but they're all substantially contradicted by this supposed biography. It also describes Basil meeting Bishop Leontius of Caesarea, whom the author didn't seem to know had been martyred before Basil was ever born. This idea that Mercurius disappeared from his icon and killed the Emperor Julian is yet one more medieval legend. That like Epiphanius's church, John presumed to be much older than it really was. Many of John's four-century witnesses are interpreted through what he thinks he's already established, and they simply don't say what he seems to think they do. He cites Basil saying, "The honor offered to the image passes to the archetype." But Basil's context wasn't icons, but Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Most of John's later sources are genuine. But if they're sorted by the actual dates, you see that the claims for icons start with a few mentions of decorative art, or honoring the remains of the martyrs. This grows into full-blown veneration of the saints only centuries after the apostles. In all of John's evidences, there are two that are notable by their absence. The first is the claim that Luke painted the first icon of Mary. Who painted the first icon of the Virgin Mary? That would be Saint Luke, the evangelist and philosopher and doctor and artist. This claim can't be documented before the sixth century, and was apparently unknown to John, but that doesn't stop it from being told and retold. But we Orthodox know what Christ looked like because the very first icon was painted by none other than the Apostle Luke, the physician. And in fact, this is an exact copy of the one he painted, the Vladimir Mother of God. 
I actually was able to venerate one of the originals of this icon, actually the original, when I was in Moscow many years ago. Despite insistence by many that the Vladimir icon was painted by Luke, even some Orthodox admit it was made a thousand years too late. Behind these legends seems to be the realization that if the apostles had actually intended us to venerate images, they could have easily passed down paintings, but they didn't. Another proof that's notable in its absence in the writings of John of Damascus is a quote often attributed to Basil by modern Orthodox apologists. I acknowledge also the holy apostles, prophets, and martyrs, and I invoke them to supplication to God, that through them, that is, through their mediation, the merciful God may be propitious to me, and that a ransom may be made and given me for my sins. Wherefore also I honor and kiss the feature of the images, inasmuch as they have been handed down from the holy apostles, and are not forbidden, but are in all our churches. Here's a quote that's claimed to settle the case of icons, yet it was apparently unknown to John and the Second Council of Nicaea. It runs contrary to the rest of what we know from the 4th century and Basil. It appears to either be a fabrication, or like some quotes John said came from Athanasius, misattributions from much later centuries. Contrary to the letter's claim that all churches venerated icons, there were many voices clearly against them besides Clement, Eusebius, and Epiphanius. The only professing Christians actually described as having icons in the early church were the Gnostics. Irenaeus said some claimed to have an image of Jesus, made by Pontius Pilate. Tertullian summed up the attitude of the early apologist, stating the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world. The whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. He noted an image of a shepherd on cups without comment, but said the portrayal of the shepherd of Hermas on a communion chalice would prostitute the sacrament. In answer to those who appeal to the brazen serpent as justifying Christian art, he says, imitate Moses, make not any likeness in opposition to the law, unless to you too God has bidden it. Origen was the head of the catechetical school in Alexandria. He described Christians as those who, being taught in the school of Jesus Christ, have rejected all images and statues. What reasonable man can refrain from smiling when he sees that one who has learned from philosophy such profound and noble sentiments about God or the gods turns straight away to images and offers to them his prayers, or imagines that by gazing upon these material things he can ascend from the visible symbol to that which is spiritual and immaterial. Orthodox dismiss Origen as a heretic when they disagree with him, but Saints Basil and Gregory of Nyssa later published extracts from this work and introduced it by saying, they who submit to the law of Moses are hated by the worshippers of images. About the year 305, the Synod of Elvira in Spain stated, there shall be no pictures in the church, lest what is worshipped and adored should be depicted on the walls. In modern Syria, excavations at Dura Europus unearthed a third century church with paintings on its walls. Like the chalice denounced by Tertullian, these are sometimes appealed to as undermining the prohibitions on images, rather than seeing them as the reason such prohibitions were made. What's striking is that the images bear little resemblance to the icons that are supposed to go back to the apostles.
it sometimes objected their icons in the catacombs. This image is from the catacombs of San Senatori, which date back to the late 3rd century. But what's not immediately obvious is St. Smargatus on the right died in the year 840, and the image is estimated to be 11th or 12th century. Such images are often assumed to be much older than they really are. The same is true of the use of an iconostas. The iconostas is that's a very late development by Orthodox standards. St. John Chrysostom never saw an iconostas. Heavens no. Heavens no. That's centuries after St. John Chrysostom. The, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom does not even presume an iconostas. For all the rationalizations that icons are sermons for the eyes, we see no Christian art before the 3rd century. Some will claim this is from the mid-2nd century. And even if it is, rather than imitating an icon by Luke, it demonstrates the evolution of Christian art from mere decoration to its modern form. In terms of Epiphanius, it's noteworthy that the quote denounced by John as a forgery was considered genuine by Epiphanius's good friend Jerome, who translated it into Latin. Contrary to the claims that Luke painted the first icon of Mary, Augustine said in the early 5th century, Neither do we know the countenance of the Virgin Mary. Icons are supposed to represent the triumph of orthodoxy, the triumph of oral apostolic tradition over sola scriptura. The reality is that they require us not only to reject the written word of God, but the writings of the early church fathers. The earliest icons were among the Gnostics and represent the same impulse that led the Jews into idolatry. They no more go back to the apostles than the traditions of the Jews went back to Moses. They are the triumph of false histories and rationalizations over the explicit teaching of God's word and the early church fathers. Just as Israel couldn't fathom that a jealous God would be offended by being represented as a golden calf, Orthodox can't fathom that the infinite Son of God could be offended by being represented in their icons. Before presuming to do what seems reasonable in the area of worship, everyone should carefully consider the story of Nadab and Abihu. They were the sons of Aaron, the high priest. The Lord had been very specific about how he was to be worshipped, but they did what was right in their own eyes. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. Icons are definitional to the Orthodox faith, but their medieval superstition masquerading as apostolic tradition. Their roots are not in the scriptures or the earliest church fathers. The same is true of what Orthodox teach about Mary. About the year 175, the Roman philosopher Celsus was repeating the slander found in the Jewish Talmud that Mary was turned out by her husband, a carpenter by trade, because she was convicted of adultery. She bore a child to a soldier named Panthera. The Proto-Evangelium, or the Gospel of James, the brother of Jesus, answered such accusations with claims that went far beyond anything in the New Testament. 
it portrayed Mary not simply as a virgin, but unimaginably holy. She was miraculously born to a barren mother. The oldest manuscripts even have her being conceived while her father was away for two months. When she was six months old, her mother stood her up, and she took seven steps. Her mother determined she was too holy to touch the ground again until she was dedicated in the temple at the age of three. There she ran up the steps and was taken to live in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest was to enter, and only once a year. There she was fed by an angel. Not only did she conceive Jesus miraculously, but instead of a traditional birth, a blinding light appeared, and as it gradually decreased, the infant appeared. When a midwife was told the story by another, she insisted on physically examining Mary, and discovered that even after the birth, her virginity was still intact. It is from this proto-evangelium that Orthodox get the feast of Mary's nativity and her entrance into the temple. The problem is that like the writings of Dionysius the Areopagite and the donation of Constantine, we know James the brother of Jesus didn't actually write this, even though it explicitly claims him as its author. The real author was seriously confused about the geography of Israel, calling the land around Bethlehem a desert. When Luke has Joseph living in Nazareth of Galilee, the author instead has him in Judea. At Jesus' birth, the Magi left Jerusalem and traveled five miles south to Bethlehem. All of this is in the heart of Judea, but the writer not only contradicts the New Testament by having Jesus born outside of Bethlehem, but apparently outside of Judea as well, because the wise men are warned after seeing him not to enter Judea. The author is also confused on other matters. He describes Joseph undergoing the test of bitter waters that God prescribed only for women. He identifies Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, as the Jewish high priest, when Luke only identifies him as one of the multitude of ordinary priests. The high priest served year-round, but just as Zacharias is described in Luke's Gospel, an ordinary priest served two weeks a year, and lots were taken for what duties he would perform. The Jewish historian Josephus gives us a list of all the high priests for that time, and not one of them was named Zacharias. The high priest he names for the time of Mary's childhood was Simon, the son of Boethus, and the father-in-law to King Herod. The author also seems to conflate this first-century Zacharias with the son of Barachias, who was killed hundreds of years earlier in the temple. And he says after his murder, he was succeeded as high priest by Simeon, the old man from the Gospel of Luke. Once again, this is something that goes far beyond what the scriptures tell us, and is contrary to all historical evidence. Orthodox call this holy tradition, but it's not from the apostles or the church fathers. It's from a counterfeit made to give legitimacy to something that wasn't really apostolic. This isn't simply modern Protestant opinion. In the year 405, Pope Innocent I listed the Proto-Evangelium among the works that are not only to be rejected, but also condemned. Pope Galatius listed it among the works, not merely rejected, but eliminated from the whole Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church, and with their authors, and the followers of its authors, to be damned in the inextricable shackles of anathema forever. In spite of all this, by the time you get to the 8th century, John of Damascus and others were preaching the Proto-Evangelium as authoritative as Scripture, and Orthodox continue to do so to this day. And today we're talking about the second great 
feast of the Theotokos, which is her entrance into the temple. When she was three years old, they brought her to the temple and they brought her to dedicate her there and to, in a sense, leave her there. And they were concerned. They were worried. She's just a little child. She's going to be scared. She's going to be afraid to go into this massive stone temple. And so they had some of the young women that we see here in the icon holding candles. And they were going to have these young women walk ahead of her into the temple so that seeing these pretty young girls with their candles, she'd be excited and she'd go in. But the Theotokos already at that young age had an overwhelming love for the God who would one day be her son. And so the story tells us that she ran up the stairs. She bypassed these young women and she ran up the stairs and there she was greeted by Zacharias, who was the high priest at that time. And he instructed by God himself ushered her into the Holy of Holies. Far more important than it being the basis of some homilies, the story has also been incorporated into the church's hymns, which for orthodoxy carry the same authority as its creeds. And this proto-evangelium isn't simply the basis of a couple of feasts, but it's the foundation for almost all the claims made for Mary's perpetual virginity. About the year 383, Jerome claimed support for the doctrine from Ignatius and a number of others in the early church. But all we really find them saying was that Mary was a virgin before Jesus' birth, and Irenaeus saying she delivered without the pain connected with the curse on Eve. Only two church fathers can be found before the Council of Nicaea who actually claim Mary continued to be a virgin after Jesus' birth, Clement of Alexandria and his student Origen. The Orthodox readily dismiss both in their rejection of icons, but praise them when they need them to support their views on Mary. Not only does Clement seem to have gotten his ideas from the Proto-Evangelium, but he recognized them as a minority position. It appears that even today, many hold that Mary, after the birth of her son, was found to be in the state of a woman who has given birth while, in fact, she was not so. For some say that, after giving birth, she was examined by a midwife who found her to be a virgin. Please note, Clement says some say. Not everyone knows from the apostles, but merely some people claim Mary was found to still be a virgin. Evidence that he's drawing the story of the midwife from the Proto-Evangelium is that his student origin specifically cites it as his evidence in making a similar claim. The book of James records that the brethren of Jesus were sons of Joseph by a former wife, whom he married before Mary. Now, those who say so wish to preserve the honor of Mary in virginity to the end, so that body of hers, which was appointed to minister to the word, might not know intercourse with a man after the Holy Spirit came into her and the power from on high overshadowed her. Much of what Eastern Orthodox claim as holy tradition comes from such sources. Should all these arguments not suffice, we relay as a final piece of proof that Mary lived her entire life in virginity. 
the following quotation from the letter of Pilate to Herod. This supposed letter from Pilate, along with the ascension of Isaiah and the odes of Solomon, are often cited as proofs for Mary's perpetual virginity. But they're not only demonstrable counterfeits, but they're often heretical in their content. The ascension of Isaiah presents Jesus and the Holy Spirit as angels, who are by nature inferior to the Father. It also describes the Holy Spirit as female. After ascending through six levels of heaven, it has Isaiah in the seventh seeing a vision of the birth of Christ. And after two months of days, while Joseph was in his house, and Mary his wife, but both alone, it came to pass that when they were alone, that Mary straightway looked with her eyes, and saw a small babe, and she was astonished. And after she had been astonished, her womb was found as formerly before she had conceived. The 19th Ode of Solomon can sound less Gnostic when quoted in part. Mary is simply portrayed as delivering without pain, but Orthodox tend to ignore the verses that immediately preceded. The son is the cup, and he who was milked is the father, and the Holy Spirit milked him, because his breasts were full, and it was necessary for him that his milk should be sufficiently released, and the Holy Spirit opened his bosom and mingled the milk from the two breasts of the father and gave the mixture to the world. This is like nothing we find in the scriptures or the early church fathers. Rather than it showing the Proto-Evangelium as reflecting holy tradition, it demonstrates it reflecting a Gnosticism that promoted Mary's ongoing virginity to deny Christ's true humanity. Proponents of Mary's perpetual virginity will sometimes argue they do have more orthodox evidence from before Nicaea. The title Ever Virgin, Hypothenos, was first used by St. Peter of Alexandria in 311. Here's a famous martyr referring to Mary as ever virgin in the year 311. It's not really all that early, but it also has a problem in that it uses a term we don't find elsewhere for over a generation. And the source for the quote is a 10th century manuscript of a 7th century history that gives an excerpt from a supposed 4th century work for which we have no other evidence. You may say, well, how do we see this? Where do we find this in Scripture, Father? Of course, the consciousness of the Church has always borne witness to the supreme holiness of the Mother of God. The consciousness of the Church uh, has hymned this. Some of our earliest hymns to the Mother of God, we, we have 3rd century copies of, of the most ancient, beneath thy compassion, we have a copy from the 3rd century. That's how long the believers have been hymning uh, the the magnificence of the Mother of God and Her Holiness. This sounds like compelling evidence, until you realize that the papyrus to which he refers has nothing other than the material and penmanship to indicate its date. Trenum is citing the earliest any scholar has speculated for it, while ignoring that others, such as Dr. Hans Forster at the University of Vienna, dated as late as the 8th century. Despite all this, Orthodox insist the perpetual virginity of Mary was the universal faith of the early church and never challenged before the late 4th century. There was a Western writer named Helvidius who put forward an opinion opposed to 
the accepted and received teaching of the church, and his teaching concerned the ever-virginity of the mother of God, St. Mary. And he concluded this erroneous opinion because of what he read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So Helvidius erroneously stated that after the birth of the Lord, St. Mary then entered into a conjugal life with St. Joseph and had from him other children who are called in the Gospels the brothers and sisters of Christ. But up until that point, the accepted teaching within the church was that St. Mary was a virgin, not only before the birth of the Lord, not only during it, but especially afterwards. And so Helvidius came to this conclusion because he misunderstood and misinterpreted the Greek word eos. And you can, some people pronounce it as hehos, which is translated into English as till, the word till or until. And this word, unlike the English word, does not carry with it any sort of reference to time. It was against Helvidius that the monk Jerome was responding in claiming that all the early church fathers supported Mary's perpetual virginity. As with John of Damascus, few Orthodox actually scrutinize his arguments. Jerome began by calling Helvidius an ignorant boar who has scarce known the first glimmer of learning. Helvidius had pointed out that if Matthew had intended to convey that Joseph never knew Mary as his wife, he could easily have used the language of Judah never again knowing Tamar. Jerome countered that the word translated until didn't mean he eventually did know her. He pointed to the example of Jesus saying, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He asked, Will the Lord then after the end of the world has come forsake his disciples? Jerome insisted that if Helvidius' argument was true, Joseph couldn't wait but must consummate his marriage immediately after Mary gave birth. On your showing, Joseph must at once approach her and be subject to Jeremiah's reproof. They were as mad horses in respect of women. Everyone nag after his neighbor's wife. Otherwise, how can the words stand good? He knew her not till she had brought forth a son. If he waits after the time of another purifying has expired, if his lust must brook another long delay of forty days. The mother must go unpurged from her childbed taint, and the wailing infant be attended by the midwives, while the husband clasps his exhausted wife. Therefore must their married life begin, so that the evangelist may not be convicted of falsehood. It's clear. This isn't what Helvidius said but merely Jerome trying to make his argument sound ridiculous. Jerome goes on to argue that there being no room in the inn was even further evidence that Joseph couldn't have taken Mary as his wife. Helvidius had appealed to another passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brethren James and Joses and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? 
Jerome said if Joseph wasn't really Jesus' father, these weren't really his brothers. He pointed out that the term brothers can also have a wider meaning, as when Abraham referred to his nephew Lot as his brother, or when Christians call one another brothers. Helvidius had also appealed to Paul referring to the Apostle James as the Lord's brother. Jerome argued that if James, the brother of Jesus, was called an apostle, he could only be referring to James, the son of Alphaeus, since James, the son of Zebedee, had already been martyred. The problem with that is that Barnabas was also called an apostle, even though he was never among the twelve. Jerome also has to argue that Mary's sister was also named Mary, so that James, the son of Mary, could be Jesus' cousin, not brother. Behind all Jerome's mockery and caricatures, his claims boil down to scripture being unclear, and church history speaking overwhelmingly against Helvidius. As we've seen, that's not actually the case. In fact, Helvidius pointed to Tertullian and Bishop Victorinus of Potavium as explicitly denying that Mary was a virgin after Jesus' birth. Very little survives from Victorinus. But Helvidius was right that nearly two centuries earlier, Tertullian had been a vocal opponent to the idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin. He strongly affirmed that Jesus was conceived miraculously, but he saw the claim that Jesus had an unnatural birth as Gnostic and denying his true humanity. A natural birth meant Mary had ceased to be a virgin when she delivered him. If as a virgin she conceived, in her childbearing she became a wife. For she became a wife by that same law of the open body, in which it made no difference whether the violence was of the male let in or let out. The same sex performed that unsealing. For all other women, marriage opens it. Consequently, hers was the more truly opened in that it was the more shut. Indeed, she is rather to be called not virgin than virgin, having become a mother by a sort of leap before she was a bride. Tertullian described Mary as one betrothed who would marry after her delivery. He called her Joseph's wife and a model of monogamy, not protectorship by a much older man. He dismissed those who argued Jesus' relationship to his brothers was figurative, but calls them blood relations. In answer to why Jesus would commit his mother to John rather than to them, he pointed to the scripture saying they didn't yet believe on him. Jerome responded, Of Tertullian, I say no more than that he did not belong to the church. Tertullian did become a Montanist, but he was also the man who coined the term Trinity and was called the Master by Cyprian. As with Clement, Origen, and every other early church writer, Orthodox find excuses to arbitrarily pick and choose what's supposed to represent holy tradition. Well, we, we allow a heresy in almost every father. Everyone's allowed a little heresy. <laughs> and we don't just, we don't pay much attention to it. You know, I'm, I mean, I think of the universalism of St. Saint, of Saint Gregory of Nyssa, for example. We don't, well, you know, it's like that, well, you know. They can't admit that we have Christians reading the scriptures about Mary just like Protestants around the year 206. Who do they really have saying otherwise before Nicaea? The Gnostics? someone pretending to be James the brother of Jesus, and Clement and Origen, who were basing their opinions on his testimony. Another problem for the Orthodox is that even Jerome contradicts them on what constitutes apostolic tradition. 
You say that Mary did not continue a virgin. I claim still more that Joseph himself, on account of Mary, was a virgin, so that from a virgin wedlock a virgin son was born. It is no one written, and he had another wife, but was the guardian of Mary, whom he was supposed to have to wife, rather than her husband. The conclusion is that he who was thought worthy to be called father of the Lord remained a virgin. Remember, Eastern Orthodoxy insists that apostolic tradition has Joseph as a widower with grown children. It has always been taught in the early church and believed by all that the brothers of the Lord were the sons of the widower, St. Joseph, from his previous marriage, as is stated in the writings of the early church fathers, St. Epiphanius, the Bishop of Cyprus, St. Cyril, the Pope of Alexandria, and St. Hilary, the Bishop of Poitiers. Orthodox recognize that Rome's claims for Mary have evolved, with her immaculate conception becoming official dogma in 1854, and her bodily assumption in 1950. But they tend to ignore how their own claims have evolved. It's assumed Christians have always been praying to her to save them. But the scriptures and the early church fathers actually have very little to say about Mary, beyond that she was a godly virgin who gave birth to Jesus. When Jesus was told his mother and brothers were desiring to speak to him, he asked his disciples, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. In the book of Acts, Mary's only mentioned as one of a group of people being present in the upper room before Pentecost. She may be at the center of Orthodox devotion, but in all the rest of the New Testament, she's only referenced once in passing by the Apostle Paul. There he describes Jesus as made of a woman. Medieval commentators tried to read her into the woman of Revelation 12, but we see none of that in the early church fathers. Irenaeus and Tertullian describe Mary as a new Eve, but little else. Quotes are sometimes given that are supposed to show Mary as the Ark of the Covenant, or prayers being offered for her intercession in the 3rd century. But like Trinum's hymn, they're from sources dated more by wishful thinking than real evidence. Orthodox read what they want from history, even insisting that the reformer John Calvin believed in Mary's perpetual virginity. But for us Orthodox Christians, first of all, it's, we would say for 2,000 years is an un, no one doubts this. This is un, no doubt about this, this, do, this doctrine, this dogma, that she was ever virgin. And in the West, I would say the same, actually. And if you look at Luther and Calvin, they both believed it as well. Calvin did reject Helvidius' argument that Mary must have had other sons because Christ's brothers are sometimes mentioned. But just because he didn't believe that one argument was definitive didn't mean he completely disagreed. In commenting on Luke 134, he said, The conjuncture which some have drawn from these words, that she had formed a vow of perpetual virginity, is unfounded and altogether absurd. She would, in that case, have committed treachery by allowing herself to be united to a husband, and would have fought contempt on the holy covenant of marriage, which could not have been done without mockery of God. Besides, it is an idle and unfounded supposition that a monastic life existed among the Jews. The real explosion of Marian devotion 
didn't take place until after the conversion of Constantine and the legalization of Christianity in the 4th century. Writers then began to see her in the Ark of the Covenant, as well as Noah's Ark. She was Moses' burning bush and Jacob's ladder. She was the cloud on which Elijah was taken to heaven, and she was the queen of heaven. Eventually, Byzantine coins would show her crowning the emperor, and her icon led armies into battle. To understand how all that transpired, we need to understand the rise of asceticism. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. The second century Gnostic Marcion denounced marriage as an evil and unchaste thing, and the followers of Tatian called the Incritites or self-controlled also rejected it, along with the eating of meat. Irenaeus and Tertullian opposed their unbiblical asceticism, but just as counterfeit scriptures blurred the lines between Gnostic and Orthodox on the subject of Mary, a second-century forgery called the Acts of Paul did the same in promoting Gnostic renunciations of food and marriage. The Apostle Paul had warned of forged letters in his own lifetime, but in spite of the book explicitly contradicting his known writings, it found a wide audience. It portrays incidents supposedly left out of the New Testament, such as Paul being thrown to lions in Ephesus, and the strongest lion assuming a posture of prayer and protecting him from the other beast. In recounting his beheading, it says his neck spurted milk instead of blood. In the story of Paul and Thecla, it has him echoing the Gnostics, saying you have no resurrection, unless you remain in chastity and pollute not the flesh. Thecla is presented as Paul's disciple, and a strikingly beautiful woman. She's repeatedly pressed to marry, but refuses to give up her virginity in the hope of obtaining that resurrection. Numerous attempts are made to execute her, and like the Proto-Evangelium, there are miracles on nearly every page. She's delivered from fire, lions, a bear, bulls, and even from man-eating seals. When Paul refuses to baptize her, she jumps in with the seals and baptizes herself. She somehow becomes an apostle and takes up residence in a cave. Other women flock to her to take up the ascetic life. She lives to the age of 90 on nothing but herbs and water. When men seek to rape her to rob her of her miracle-working ability, the mountain opens up and receives her and closes behind her. Despite contradicting the biblical Paul, like the Proto-Evangelium, this is what Eastern Orthodox call holy tradition. St. John Chrysostom says of this wonderful Christian heroine and saint, I seem to see this blessed virgin going to Christ with sacred virginity in one hand and holy martyrdom in the other. The Holy Church glorifies Thecla as the glory of women and guide for the suffering, opening up the way to every torment. From of old, many churches were dedicated to